it's so clear also that this is a number two. And when I say number two, I'm sorry. What did he say? Hey. Oh. Hey. So clear that this is like a... <laughs> And welcome to Plot Devices episode 41. I made it. This is 40 joke last show. You'd think within two weeks I would have seen the movie. Uh, this is going to be the ongoing saga of Will Brandon have seen this by episode 140 or whatever that nonsense is. I am your host for today, Brandon King. Very dense episode of Plot Devices, as we'll get into later. And I'm joined alongside my far less and far much more welcoming co host, Noah Guzman. Noah, how are you today? Brandon, we have two damn near three hour long movies. One of them falls just a little bit under, the other falls just a little bit over. Uh, but we have some exciting uh, surprises packed in for the second half of the episode. Uh, we have a special guest joining us in the later half of today's show, but details soon follow. Okay, stay tuned. Um, but Lately, Brandon, I think last episode, I was on a high from the song Voodoo Mama off of the Babylon soundtrack. And since then, uh, Justin Hurwitz and Spotify and whoever is out there um, allowing us to stream this uh, soundtrack has released the full Babylon soundtrack. So I have just been playing that top to bottom on Spotify uh, throughout my workday, throughout my dishes, throughout my laundry time. Um, I'm really, I'm really finding myself enjoying the soundtrack and just like inviting it into my day, uh, not in the same way that I would do in the past. So, you know, call this a new routine and I'm going to start practicing it. So Babylon, thank you for bringing me and thank you, Justin Hurwitz. Guys, Noah's becoming a score nerd like me. It's happening finally. But the score, the scores on Spotify, listen up. You will never knock out my show tunes ranking. Okay. <laughs> that is sitting at a high rank two. And I highly doubt that, this usurper will come and take it of its place. Uh, how are you, Brandon? What's going on? It's weirdly cold in my house right now, so I'm, uh, you can't see me, but I'm bundled up in some layers. But uh, yeah, also enjoying score, enjoying the Bones and All score over and over again, which I've been just really getting into more and more. Um, and you're putting me on the spot for more scores, and I can't think of any. Uh, but you know who, is, who does have scores on the mind? Natural transition time is the awards season. We are knee-deep, finally, in awards season. We talked last week about the Gotham Awards, as well as um, the New York Film Critics Circle Awards, finally giving out their awards. We're starting to get into more awards bodies. Not just the Oscars, just yet. We're going to get to that next month, hopefully, when we come back. Shh, quiet about that. Um, but two major awards bodies have finally announced their nominees for this year. Specifically, uh, we first and foremost have the 28th Critics' Choice Awards. This is, of course, uh, from the Critics' Choice Association. Everything Everywhere All at Once is the big winner here. Once again, 14 nominations. Best Picture, Best Director for Daniels, and Best Actress for Michelle Yeoh. Two Best Supporting Actress nominations for both Stephanie Sue and Jamie Lee Curtis. This was a major point of contention as we started getting more nominations announced, but Critics' Choice seemed to argue that both of them are worthy. Uh, and of course, Kate Hoi Kwan for Supporting Actor as well. Uh, other major contenders, we have The Fablemans with 11 nominations, and both Banshees of Inisherin and Babylon with 9. Uh, Chelsea Handler will be hosting that ceremony on The CW. You can watch that on January 15th if you're so inclined. And probably the bigger news, at least to a lot of people, but we'll get into it not so much myself, uh, the 80th Golden Globe Awards also announced their nominees. Uh, same leaders, but in different order. They went with Banshees of Inisherin as their uh, top-nominated movie. That got eight, including uh, Best Musical or Comedy. For context, the Golden Globes split into musical comedy and drama, just if you're not aware. Uh, and Best Actor in Musical Comedy, uh, Colin Farrell was nominated in that. And Carrie Condon, thank God, got a Best Supporting Actress nomination uh, for that as well. Following that, we had Everything Everywhere All at Once with six nominations, The Fablemans and Babylon, both with five each. So Babylon is picking up some steam, just not dominating as some people had foreshadowed earlier. Uh, Jared Carmichael will be hosting that ceremony on January 10th. 
On NBC and Peacock, there was some question about with all of the hoopla about the Hollywood Foreign Press Association and their lack of inclusion. We can get into that with the nominations, but people were pulling their advertising spots. People were wondering if, if NBC was going to keep their television deal with them. They are. They're at least keeping that for this year. So, Noah, I want to get into it. First and foremost, um, your feelings on both of these ceremonies, specifically Golden Globes, in, in, again, the wake of all the controversy that's been around them. But also, as we talked about last week, you know, with movies like Avatar and RRR and uh, Tar and Women Talking, getting the buzz that they're getting, are you starting to see any patterns for what the Oscars might go to? I wanted us to highlight this piece of news, you know, from from the rundown that we were viewing our pre-production meeting, because, yes, the the thrill of award season is upon us. Uh, we have these exciting pictures to reminisce on, even though they came out and we reviewed, we've had conversations. Those topics, some of them have died on, some of them are reemerging because of the awards. Uh, the name Michelle Yeoh coming in as a contender for Best Actor, I am I'm rallying behind. Uh, we talk in the past about uh, inclusions of Triple R and what that's going to mean. Uh, we are also talking about a film we haven't even seen yet. So a big surprise from this list is seeing the excitement surrounding Babylon. I know Damien Chazelle will have a beautiful picture presented to us when it arrives, but to see already the trap and it has, I'm just, now there is no doubt, I guess, um, you know, put that up against a film like The Fablements, a film that has, uh, you know, while it's generated conversation, they haven't come close to my eyes and like, I haven't engaged in those spaces to really understand what the Fableman's appeal was until we discussed it here on the podcast. You gave an excellent review that inclined me actually to, hey, write it down on the watch list. You actually go and check the, <laughs> I don't want to say the oddball here, but Banshees of Inisherin was a film that I thought was, it was new. It was very shocking uh, near, near the end of it, but now to see the response to what what I witnessed, like I went alone too, so I wasn't really sure like how others would feel about this movie. But damn, was that just such a great picture? Um, this year's going to be tough with the with the biggest pictures going up against each other. I know that everything everywhere is like just magnificent to compare. But what happens when you have to be the one to make these decisions? Brandon, you and I don't make these decisions, and I'm very happy about that. For me, the Critics' Choice is the more interesting just because I weigh that body's input a bit more. I know where that body is coming from a bit more, whereas the Golden Globes, they've tried to reform a little bit, but like there's a lot of work to be done there. Um, and again, their body is only made up of, I think, I think it's maybe max still 150 uh, foreign journalists who work in the States. Again, there's, there's criteria around the Golden Globes that I'm still not entirely a fan of, but I can't argue with necessarily the results. Like some of these are pretty cool. Um, Jeremy Pope got in for the inspection of film that I also have not seen, but I've heard he's fantastic in. Um, Ana de Armas got in for Blonde, possibly her only major awards nomination this year. But, you know, we had our thoughts on Blonde. You can go listen to that, but, you know, good to see that. And Emma Thompson got in for a good luck to you, Leo Grant, in the uh, musical, musical comedy category. But like, also, even if you go down the line, you know, Pinocchio is getting a lot of steam in animation category and specifically also even going into song. There's a lot of weird trends popping up in here where like Top Gun is still dominating in the categories it does need to. Tom Cruise did get in weirdly enough for Golden Globe, even though he handed back their awards to him, which is kind of a neat little, oh, that's a little bit of tea to talk about. But then you get into some of the Critics' Choice stuff and it's fairly similar, 
Um, although notably, uh, Hilder Gwadnazir, uh, who's the score for Joker, got two nominations, both for Women Talking and for Tar. Tar technically doesn't have a score, so I'm curious to see what the decision behind that was. Um, but then a lot of the usual nominations here and around, you know, Elvis getting a lot of big buzz, even beyond even beyond the normal Hollywood circle. So there's a lot of really interesting things to kind of cover on this, and we don't really have time to get into all of it. But it, there's a lot of patterns really forming between certain movies really succeeding, and then others, I didn't even mention, like, The Whale is really only succeeding in actor and makeup. So it's kind of interesting to see which movies are kind of starting to fall by the wayside. Brandon, do you see names on here that would be a repeated victory for, like, a, a name like the Daniels? I suspect this will be very new for them. They're newcomer to this to this state of recognition. Um, but when we talk about the other directors here involved, do you see any legacy filmmakers here have an opportunity to showcase, like, a new evolution of their work? Or is this just this, a new example of something that they've done in the past? I think about... The Fablemans, that was from Spielberg. There's definitely a bit of consistency in there. I'm just scrolling down to the director for Golden Gloves. What surprised me a little bit is not necessarily that Elvis is doing well. Like, we kind of knew that film would do well with, you know, Butler technical categories. But Baz Luhrmann is getting a lot of directing nominations. And I think that could really carry over him in a way that I don't think he's been this successful with an awards campaign since like Romeo and Juliet. And I don't think that movie got that much, but like this is kind of a new level. It's carrying over both musical biopic buzz and this kind of resurgence for him. So it's kind of surprising to see him do that for a movie that, you know, if you go back and listen, we were fairly mixed on, but I really appreciate what he was able to do with his style and evolving with that in the movie, even though I don't think it totally works. But then on the other hand, you go to the Golden Globe nominations and then like Gina Prince Bythewood for the Woman King is nominated, which is fantastic news. I love the old guard. I love her style. And I, really just wanted to see her succeed a bit more. So it's interesting to see which new names they're going with and contrast to, you know, a James Cameron, who is a director who I think a lot of people are tired of hearing his name, but we'll get into when we talk about Avatar. There's a lot of really new, exciting stuff in Way of Water that I think should be, that I should be recognized, maybe not specifically for Cameron, but specifically for his field of view. And then even with someone like, you know, you mentioned Spielberg, I shouldn't be as surprised because, you know, it's Steven Spielberg, but I'm a little bit surprised it's doing as well as it is in the, and they're not as prominent categories below the main line. I look at the list of not here and I go, which of these is the wackiest of pictures that could take the award and really cause, cause a rupture in what patterns we've seen throughout the past. And for me, that's the Daniels. So that's why I think I do have a lot of energy, like going toward their, their success and um, cheering on for them. One additional note, though, is when it comes to the Golden Globes, Angela Bassett, the incredible performer, is going to receive a nomination for Best Supporting Actress in a Motion Picture. Brandon, this is the first, <laughs> I mean, I don't want to say the last, hopefully, with the types of performances we can expect in Marvel to come. But this is the first Marvel character performance that has earned this level of um, recognition, um, you know, awards nomination on this scale, at this level of this variety of this platform, you know, throw what you can at it. Brent, how do you feel? But, you know, we both applauded Bassett's performance to Wakanda forever. But this news, why is it news? We should also mention she was nominated for Critics' Choice as well. And I was scrolling through and I couldn't find another example of a supporting actress for Complete. So to take my word for it, I just don't think it's happened. Um, yeah, this is spectacular news. Are you kidding? Like we've talked, I think, I don't know if we talked specifically on the show, but I've had conversations with friends about, you know, in the last decade, maybe even if you want to extend like two decades, that there are maybe six, seven performances 
that I would really truly say that person was snubbed for an Academy Award, a Critics' Choice Award, a SAG nomination for their performance at a comic movie. And I think you kind of have to put Angela Bassett in that category. She, you know, go back to to either of our Black Panther reviews. There's a commonality there. We are absolutely enthralled by her work. Whatever you want to say about what the pandemic did to film going habits and to awards bodies, and there is a lot of conversation to have about that. I think it may have, I think it really may have solidified comic movies and that kind of filmmaking into the general consciousness more than any other time, really, even like when the first Avengers blew everything up in terms of box office and critical reception. I think Black Panther Wakanda Forever is such a special movie. And I think that combined with where we are in viewing comic book media as a storytelling purpose, I think that really contributed to all of this beyond the fact that, again, just everyone is, when you get a movie like this and everyone is singling out your performance, it really does lend credence to getting your eyeballs in front of more voters. Again, Golden Globes is only a few voters, so I'm not as enthralled by it, but still it does not diminish, it does not diminish any of the recognition we should be giving to her or her work. Just to recap, Oscar nominations will be coming out next month. We'll be getting to those eventually. I believe this is the last major awards body until either the Independent Spirits or the SAG Awards. We'll uh, keep you guys updated on that once those actually come out. We'll get into another trailer roundup segment, as happens when you do a bi-weekly show. Lots of trailers and first looks come out, and we got a couple. No, we're not talking about the Oppenheimer footage because neither of us saw it, I don't think. At least I didn't see it. Uh, but we are talking about, uh, first and foremost, one that probably destroyed all of your social media feeds as it did mine and maybe contributed to Avatar's box office success. Who knows? That's some tea we can talk about later. Barbie officially has a first look teaser. The long and development movie from Warner Brothers released its first look in front of screenings of Avatar The Way of Water and IMAX before releasing online the next day. The trailer gives us our first look at Margot Robbie. Doll come to life, at least I think, because we don't really know the story at this point. Uh, and Ryan Gosling as her male counterpart Ken, or at least one of them, because there are many of them, uh, directed by Lady Bird's Greta Gerwig and written by her husband, Marriage Stories Noah Baumbach. The cast also includes Simu Liu, Nikuti Gatwa, Issa Rae, America Ferreira, and Will Ferrell. Barbie will hit theaters July 21st next year in a notable box office battle with Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, which I'm sure we will be talking about sometime next year. It's going to be absolute madness. Also dropping this week, y'all are going to have to stick with it for us to be damn well going to talk about this. We have our first look at season two of The Legend of Vox Machina. Amazon's animated adaptation of the hugely popular web series from the Critical Role guys over on YouTube. The trailer appears to pick up right where season one left off, with Dex, Percy, and the rest of the disarmingly lucky and charming crew of Vox Machina about to face off against new threats, challenges, and severe hygiene issues. That last bit in the trailer, you should know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, the full voice cast of season one reprised their role, including Matthew Mercer, Travis Willingham, and Laura Bailey. Legend of Vox Machina Season 2 premieres on January 20th on Amazon, and you can actually go back to earlier this year both to see that first season on Amazon, or if you want, you can listen to our coverage on this podcast that we covered the first season. We were absolutely huge fans of it. Uh, Noah, I'm not sure if Season 2 will do the same three-block release schedule that Season 1 did, which I was actually a really big fan of. I appreciated just being able to go into it and watch it in chunks. Uh, do you want something like that? And then even beyond that, what did you think of the first one? Okay, we have to be, we have to nerd out about our Amazon Prime animated baby box machina because of what that first season achieved in storytelling, in imaginativeness, um, in taking what critical role had and applying it to this like uh, ragtag group of uh, scoundrels types of characters. Uh, you know, we have our first look at Grog just cursing up a storm, killing whatever is in his way. Uh, but I mean, dragons have stormed the kingdom, man. Uh, and slight spoiler, all I slight can... spoiler for season one. Hey, uh, you know what? Two's around the corner. 
I'm not apologizing for okay, this. Okay, fair enough. Um, Vox Machina season two. I have, I have no expectations, but that is not to say that I don't expect something incredible like I got from the first season. I just know that whatever they deliver, I'm going to be a fan of because uh, color me impressed. It was such a great time to move through that first season of the show. In chunks, I think it helped just with my attention span, like being able to sit down, taking this bit of the story. Okay, now they are guards to the kingdom. Got it. I walked away, came back. Now I have their first mission. Um, I didn't think that it lost itself in its individual episodes, but it but it did do a great job of containing itself within those batches, um, at least from my viewing experience. I wouldn't mind if they did the batch release again. You know, th- this isn't a this isn't so short a show where i think i can just binge the entire season i think it does benefit from you walking away um you know seeing on all of the sequences that you just got delivered whether it be action or whether it be the inner relationships between all of those characters every bit is worth your focus so uh, i hope that they do remain on the schedule for batch released but before we talk barbie though what is your take on the vox machina because you know we're going to spend a minute talking about barbie this looks so fun. And the first season was so fun. Like, that was the thing that I think we took away from this. This show is a blast. And yes, the characters are not rewriting the wheel on what a rogue or a brute or a sorcerer can do as far as, like, fantasy archetypes. But, like, they're just a fun bunch to be around. And, you know, it's Guardians of the Galaxy. It's Magnificent Seven. It's a group of completely unruly characters who have no business being around each other, going up against the threat that they have no business defeating and wondering how the hell are they going to do it. And the first season... For some of its narrative and ambiguity, I think, I think the second season is really going to touch up on that. It seems like we're getting a much more dire threat on that, where, you know, again, we mentioned the spoiler, there are dragons now, we have a bunch of weapons to go for it. We get to see what I think is more of a Keyleth's family, the uh, plant sorcerer people, which I'm kind of fascinated, because uh, she had her whole arc in season one, where she was kind of living up to her family expectations, I'm kind of curious to see what that is. Um, Scanlan seems like he's taking much more of a hero role, which, you know, I'm all for because he seemed like the most eclectic character of the bunch. Uh, the animation still looks incredibly vibrant. I can't believe, I, I have to believe they were working on this as season one was happening because this looks way too vibrant to be rushed. Um, but yeah, consider me absolutely on board. We're definitely going to be reviewing at least part of this. All right. Be who you want to be. The A-R-B-I-E. Barbie is here. Margot Robbie is here. Yes, the Barbie Kens world. have arrived. You know... <laughs> you know I'm looking to the one Ken, and that's my Ken. My Ken is Simulu. I am so impressed with just the little just clip that we got of him dancing. Who knows what the hell he is even doing? But just this this pink, this world of pop, I am rallying straight to the theaters to watch this. Um, the teaser, I think, did a great job of, of talking about the history of uh, it's brief, you know, so it's, I'm not going to go that deep, but it did just talk about the dolls that were given to girls as they were young. And they were always like these baby dolls. And so I hope it's taking the message of like, you know, girls are playing with these baby dolls so that they can, you know, grow up and they can just know how to mother. Well, now the Barbie came along and it's like, she can promote any kind of lifestyle that you like project onto her because she's a doll. She's Barbie. And if Margot Robbie comes in and exudes that, you know, the type of, oh, well, this is, this is my doll life and I'm going to have it look exactly the way I want it to. It's not going to surround itself with just one can, even if it is, you know, as, as dastardly good looking as Ryan Gosling. Um, hopefully it's several Ken's. Hopefully it's her and several Barbies, uh, going on their doll venture and letting the boys chase them and drool and do whatever they need to do. Um, oh, wait, Barbie and Barbie. 
huh? What? What's going on? Um, but this is a beautiful teaser. I want more from it. Imagine if Tyra Banks shows up for her cameo from Life Size. I would love that. And I think Greta Gerwig would be totally open for that. Not that I want to put words in her mouth, but I think she totally would be. Um, this looks really fun. And like, I saw, I, I don't know about you. I saw the initial screenshots coming out of when people were illegally taking pictures, quote unquote, of the IMAX screenings and like the picture of Barbie line and like Margot Robbie doing the dance. And I was like, oh, there must be more to this. And then it came out and it was about, you know, maybe 90 seconds. And most of it is a 2001 montage. And I was like, I, yeah, I was going to mention, Brandon, I saw stills like side by side that said, oh, this is kind of mimicking uh, 2001. So, I, you know, I'm sorry, I'm not familiar. Can you share with us like how they how they relate? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's been a while since I saw 2001, but I think it's going towards the idea of like you were saying, the idea of Barbie changing the face of what toys and what girlhood entertainment you want to say could be by the way if you have not watched um if you've not watched the toys who made us um and the barbie episodes with you on that that goes into that history it's really it it enlightened me on a lot of what because i never grew up on barbie or ken doll so that really enlightened me that that side of like the toy world but you're right it kind of goes to this idea like gerwig and bombach and that whole team are taking this not deadly seriously, but are trying to imbue it with the kind of cleverness that we haven't seen from a toy property since like the Lego movie, I don't think. So getting to see that kind of comparison, getting to see that shine through, Margot looks like she's having the time of her life. Ryan Gosling looks completely chaotic, and I just want to see how deep he's going to get into character for it. Again, the question is like, what's the story going to be? I really hope it's not as cliche that I'm fearing it's going to be, but in the hands of this, this teaser gave me a lot more faith than I had. Here's my stance. My stance is I want... With their movement, I almost see them like I want them to like snap and have that kind of like upright posture when it comes to living as, you know, you're a living doll or at least from where we are right now, I perceive these characters to be. Now, what will the Barbie world, you know, what will it tell us is the, you know, (laughs) sorry, I'm trying to describe this as I'm thinking or I'm trying to think about this as I'm describing it. What is the environment like for these dolls? Is this their world or is this our world that we're, that they're being placed into? That's what I have curiosities. Um, That's where my curiosity comes from because I kind of want these characters to be total embodiments of like, they can be one dimensional because they're dolls and they have to learn like what humanity feels like. They won't, you won't appear them. You won't, sorry, let me say, let me read that. You won't mistake these characters for humans because they shouldn't be the dolls. So when it comes to a character like Ken, the Gosling Ken, I imagine him to be a total Chad, <laughs> whereas um, other characters should feel different. How do you want the characterization to be explored from whether you got new ideas from the teaser or just what's been going in your head for Barbie? They're right. They have a bit of a get out of jail free card for any sort of like goofy or over the top characterization, because that's kind of how they're supposed to be, at least. from again, we because we don't know a lot of the plot elements, we're kind of forced to go on what we think it will be based on the style and what we know about Barbie and Ken's quote-unquote mythology. Again, I'm coming at this from a very unenlightened point of view. So I'm kind of with you. Like, I kind of want them to lean into the goofiness, especially for someone like Greta Gerwig, who, for as quote-unquote serious dramas as, you know, Lady Bird and Little Women are, they're also very funny films. And, like, we forget that, like, Noah Baumbach's the guy who wrote Madagascar 3. So, like, these are two people who can very much lean into that kind of over-the-top nonsense if they really want to. So I kind of want them to do that. I, I want I want to agree with you on that path. I didn't know he wrote Madagascar 3. <laughs> oh, yeah. It, it, it was a paycheck movie, and he took every cent of it. 
I find that hilarious. Okay. I, I also so. I want to mention uh, the cinematographer for this is uh, Rodrigo Prieto, who's best known for his work with Scorsese. His last two movies were The Irishman and Scorsese's upcoming Killers of the Flower Moon. So I'm very curious to know his perspective from going like from gritty cop drama to gritty Native American drama to this. You know, all things to be considered when we made Barbie and Vox Machina season two are not just topics we're considering for coverage here on the show. We know damn well we're covering Barbie and you heard us talk about Vox Machina season. We will be talking about season two when those drop. Oh, big time. Now is the portion of the show where we are going to be doing our quick hits. That is the time where Brandon and myself take one minute each so-so to deliver a piece of news that we did not include in our full news segment. We record these so we can get an edit out to you on our TikTok platform. That way you get to see my face. You get to see Brandon's face. Have a nice little visual aid for the chaos, the calamity that ensues whenever we try to deliver news a little bit faster than our brains function, at least for mine. So I'll kick it off. I will be beginning here in three two, one. Hello fans, hello gamers, hello horror streamers of the Five Nights at Freddy's franchise. I have exciting news for you, and that is that Blumhouse's take Blumhouse's production of the film Five Nights at Freddy's is going to be beginning production here in Oh my gosh. Hold on. Let me scramble for my note. Okay. It's beginning production here in February. It's going to be directed by Emma Tammy. If you're familiar with the film, The Wind, I have not seen that, but maybe you have. But the news here is we have two cast, we have two cast announcements. We have the additions of Matthew Lillard, who you may remember from Scream, the first one, the best one, or you may recall his name from Scooby-Doo. He was the live action Shaggy. So he will be joining us again here in Five Nights at Freddy's. Uh, he'll be joined by Josh Hutcherson of the Future Man series on Amazon Prime, as well as PETA from The Hunger Games. For these two names added to the Five Nights at Freddy's picture, we can expect something goofy. We can expect something, I want to say, that's going to lean more towards the camp element of what this horror can offer. I know Lillard has been uh, a horror performer in the past with that legendary title scream, but what will it mean to this story about, you know, security guards having to guard a pizzeria overnight where the animatronics slowly creep up on them and if you're a follower of the video game you'll know that you can only monitor these beasts these mechanical demons through security footages of you know the right hall the left hall you have a map you know you can close your gates it is such a uh, frightening game to play by yourself but i want the film to feel the same way these are two exciting cast announcements i'm way over time but this is such a great piece of news for uh, fans of Blumhouse, fans of these two performers, and for those excited for the next like horror title being adapted into a film, Overtime. I was going to say, these seem like two guys who the fans have really eaten up, but that studios have been reluctant to really take a risk on in casting. And so just for myself, like I love Josh Hustler in The Hunger Games. I know that Matthew Lillard has diehard Scream and Scooby-Doo online fandom, so this is really cool to hear. And, you know, I'm happy we're getting an official Five Nights at Freddy's movie. We're not getting the, oh, is this kind of like Five Nights at Freddy's with Nicolas Cage? I think it was called, like, uh, oh, Wacky's um, Fun House. You know which one I'm talking about. Yeah, You know I what know. I'm talking about. Let me find it. Uh, Willy's Wonderland was Thank not, you. but <laughs> we will be moving ahead now. Over to you, Brandon, and you can share your quick hit for today. In three, two, 
So for 25 years, Ash Ketchum has been blessing us with, you know, Pokemon misadventures and all of the sort. And now we have to say goodbye to him. As some of you may know from the numerous news reports about it, Ash Ketchum is now a world champion in Pokemon. Fantastic. He's also leaving the series. And it's slightly sad, but I'm also really excited and we can't get into it. But uh, in a video released on Pokemon's Twitter page, it has confirmed that Ash's journey will soon end. An 11-episode epilogue is going to start for Pokemon Journeys in January with a brand new series focusing on all new characters starting this April. Uh, for context, Ash highlighted the series for over a thousand episodes one of the longest running animated if not non-animated serialized shows in existence two dozen movies 20 seasons the inspiration of pokemon yellow in 1998 two generations of kids he has been he has been cited as the exposure to a lot of them to global animation and anime at large uh and to sleeping in because we all know the end joke he only got this way by sleeping in it's the value of sleep damn it uh both of ash's voice actors have given their blessing for it uh sarah natachani who's voiced the character since 2006 said he'll forever live in the hearts of generations to come and former voice actress veronica taylor released a video saying there will be many adventures i choose you of course to the many fans Brandon, how do you feel about this? You know, I didn't take in a lot of Pokemon growing up, but I know the, uh, you know, I know the iconicism of the headliner, Ash. So how do you feel about him kind of not being the face of that show anymore, that program? We don't have a lot of time because it's quick hits, but I'll simply say this. I have been an on and off fan of Pokemon anime for many, many years. I have not caught up on all of Journeys, but I've seen the big ending battle that's been going online because it is a big deal. Like 25 years and Ash is still 10 years old somehow and is still the, uh, is still the world champion. I have had so Noah, we don't have time to get into this right now i have had so many like just little nights of sleepless nights of just writing notes about what the anime could be i've always had an idea for what it could be it could be you know serialized and grand like really tap into the the world building of pokemon and it kind of hasn't it's focused on its own thing which i and millions of others have loved to pieces i'm obviously a little bit sad to see ash go he was such an important part of my child as much as you know anyone else he's one of maybe the most like that even you said people who don't watch anime know who ash ketchum and pikachu are so like to see it go on without this is a little sad, but I'm so, so happy they're going in a different direction with this. It kind of needs it to stay fresh, and I only hope to see what comes next. We are now headed into our review territory. We are talking today about two films. They are Bardo, the false chronicle of a handful of truth. And second film, we know you're waiting for it. We'll get there. It is Avatar, The Way of Water. Brandon, can you please kick off our discussion of Bardo, what it is, what kind of surprise we have packed for our listeners, and let's just go right into this cinematic piece. I'll spoil the surprise right now. We have a special guest joining us right now. Uh, you may know him from the LA Film Critics Association with uh, pieces in LA Times, uh, The Wrap, which I'm sure we're going to bring up today. Uh, among a bunch of other things, he's one of my favorite like new writers coming in the last few years, at least, that I've discovered. Uh, Carlos Aguilar is joining us on Plot Devices. Carlos, thank you so much for joining us. How are you today? Thank you for having me. Doing great. Thank you. We're here to talk about uh, Bardo, the false chronicle of a handful of truths, newest movie from Alejandro Dianarotu. Um, Last movie was The Revenant, which, of course, Leo won him his uh, infamous Oscar for probably the better fight scene, among many other things. You might know him from Amores Peros, from Birdman, uh, from a bunch of other things. Very accomplished uh, Mexican filmmaker. This is his newest project. And I believe first of a deal with Netflix. I need to go back and check with that. But it is primarily streaming on Netflix. It's getting a limited theatrical run, I believe, as well. We follow... Uh, Severio Gama, who is essentially a stand-in for Onyaru too. I mean, we can debate that uh, once we get into the review. Uh, played by Daniel Jimenez Cacho. He is a Mexican journalist turned filmmaker. He's had incredible success with a lot of different movies. His latest movie, which is the False Chronicle of Hamble of the Troops that the movie is based on, uh, it's basically a docu-fiction work. Uh, it's a bit of truth, a bit of fiction, somewhere in between. That's where he makes the movie. He is relatively successful. He lives with his wife, uh, Lucia, played by Griselda Cipriani. And essentially, the movie is a very non-linear structure of a bunch of things going on with his life. He is going to be interviewed 
by a friend turned talk show host who he thinks is going to eviscerate him for a lot of his art. We don't really know if a lot of that comes to pass. Um, he has a really complicated relationship with his kids, uh, with his dad, who we see flashbacks of. Um, and it's a lot of really exploring his own psyche, a lot of the methodology of his work, and where essentially his cultural background intertwines with his sense of truth. Carlos, I brought you on here because I read your review of it. And, you know, at least for me, you're someone who follows a lot of festival circuits. This movie got a less than warm reception when it initially premiered at Venice. Uh, I believe in order to do a whole separate cut that wind up going to Netflix. But you, I think, saw the original cuts. What were your expectations going into this? Because again, it's been seven years since Inyaratu has made a feature-length film on this. What has your experience been with the filmmaker? And why did you feel about Bardo the way that you did? It was sort of like, not strange, but almost disingenuous that, you know, those were the reactions out of Venice is that I think that the people that were, you know, writing those reviews, I feel often were not fans of his work from the get-go. And so I feel like sometimes people need to accept the biases that they have uh, someone's work. And But what I mean by that is that like Bardo is not him doing something different in the sense that if you had not liked his previous work, uh, it was very unlikely that you were going to sort of fall into the spell of this when it's, you know, as excessive um as as it is and i think that the thing that bothered me the most about those early reviews was that it was sort of um they were reducing the film uh as some sort of something like an exercise in ego or narcissism or whatnot and sort of like diluting and not even engaging with the sort of bigger cultural uh you know elements of the film which you know uh probably a lot of those writers don't have the range or the knowledge or the understanding to deal with those things and so i felt that there was it was a little bit sort of disingenuous i'm always been a fan of his work although i will say that in different measures you know there are films that i like more than others i'm not the biggest fan of the revenant that's probably the one that i like the least of his movies um but i really love amores perros i you know i love i even love Babel, you know which is one of those that also people don't enjoy and i think that he's always had sort of sensibility in the sense that he wants to make ambitious big broad stroke movies to me i will take a movie that is you know, ambitious and extravagant and strange and that's trying to do something, even if it doesn't get all the way there, than something much safer as the other movies this year that are dealing with directors' childhoods and whatnot, um, or or lives. And so um going into it, I you know, it was very interesting because it's the first movie that he made in Mexico since Amores Perros. I saw the first cut and I really liked it. I think the the new cut, it's really only a couple scenes that are gone and maybe there are trimmings in, in, in a scene where he walks around Mexico City. I think that was much longer in the original one, uh, the downtown Mexico City area. And so, again, I don't think that those 20 minutes are going to... Like, if you don't like the movie, you're not going to like it with or without those 20 minutes. Like, I feel like if you're in it, if it's you're in your wavelength, it could be 20 minutes longer and it will be fine. You know, uh, I think it was more of just him trying to... I don't know, perhaps make it a little bit more accessible in terms of the runtime, but I don't know if the goal was to gain converts when your movie is that long already and it's such a unique sort of particular vision. Uh, if you're not on that wavelength, I don't think that's going to, you know, the 20 minutes or more is not going to make a difference. I wanted to mention that his vision comes across as very, uh, you know, here's a story that is woven in the middle of what I'm assuming is a man's madness, but maybe it's not just particular for the man because it kind of, it's just the, 
the style of the film that we're watching, right? Brandon mentioned stocky fiction, but I only knew that term because of the movie. And the movie does play the trick of, hey, I'm going, to, I'm going to uh, define what you're doing here in the story because it's exactly how the film is being presented to its viewers, uh, if that makes sense, right? Uh, there's portions that talk about, or if not the whole thing, talking about Mexican identity. The story is a lot of... I'm a, I keep on saying madness, but I don't want to say that it's disjointed because the story does feel like you, you know, you follow a, a main character in Silverio, but it doesn't give you a lot of reality to ground yourself in when it comes to what scene is to come. The scene that just happened, was it just an idea in, in Silverio's head or was it actually a, a scene that was rooted in reality? Because yeah, this was a lot to take in for me, but I didn't find myself, you know, completely turned off to the idea that this is a filmmaker's particular style. I will say that it is meant to be a dream. And I think the movie follows the logic dream. I wouldn't call it madness. I think it's dreamlike in its structure, right? When you're dreaming, you know, one scene leads to another without any sort of logical logical sense, but emotional sense. So I think emotionally it makes, you know, it's it, it makes sense in an emotional level, even if, if the sequence of events don't, right? You are looking at a man's, you know, recollections of his own life in this sort of like state of, you know, or in a coma or in a dream, you know, and sort of, uh, I think that that's sort of the logic that the film is following in the sense that we also hear he can't speak. The sound also is there's a dissonance between what we hear and what, what he's able to do or, or how he's able to engage with what's happened. I think that that's also how dreams work, right? When you, even when you're lucid dreaming, you know, you're aware that you're dreaming, but the way that you can engage with the things that happen in your dream. Uh, are not the same ways that you would engage with in reality, right? And so, like, he doesn't, he might be, in reality, he probably would be angrier at some of the things that people are saying to him, or he would react a different way. But in a dream logic, it's old, uh, a fluid, sort of uh, nonlinear association of ideas, you know, in a, in a, in a dream-like way. It's the thing of, like, how mad is a dream? Like, how, quote-unquote, unwell are you in your dreams? But, like, there's not really any sense of being well in a dream because it just simply is. And I think you're getting to kind of the point of, like, what the movie is trying to do, where I I see some of where, you know, the early reviews were coming from. Like, it is jumbled. It is a lot to take in. And there are certainly things that kind of jar you, let alone the runtime, which, at least for me, I had to go this, you know, do this in spurts. To me, when people complain about the running time of something, it's always like, yeah, but you will see two, three hours of this other movie. So it's not the running time. It's really the content that is challenging you that makes you feel the time because you are, you know, it's not your type of film or it's, it's, it's asking too much of you. So I, I feel like the running time is always to me like a cheap shot for, for any movie, not just for this one, just for any movie. You know, like people saw two, three hours of RRR, you know, which is a great movie, it's a, but it's an, it's a spectacle movie. So I feel like it really is up to content not some about the running time people can you know binge watch seven episodes of stranger things uh one saturday afternoon you know and so yeah anyway i should actually rectify my statement it's not necessarily because of the runtime but also because it is very dreamlike it kind of it bounces from one thing to the next and if you are not completely locked in for what it's doing it can feel like a lot like you mentioned the sound design i really kind of love the sound design for it because it feels like either I'm just getting too in tuned with it, or maybe it's uh, intentional from the audio too. Like you'll hear like different, you know, footstep patterns, or you'll hear like mumbles in the background just here and there. Like at least for me, when I was wearing headphones and watching it, where it feels like the movie is kind of progressively diving deeper between layers of dreams. This is not Inception, but it kind of feels like it in that way. And I really kind of wound up appreciating that aspect of the movie for it. That 
you know, at first I was wondering, okay, where does, you know, we start off with him like leaping in the desert. Where does that go? Followed by a particularly brutal, you know, uh, birth giving scene. And then as you get on with the movie, you're like, there is, but it's not narrative based. And I think I just needed to lock myself into that. I guess I was just more, you know, I knew certain things about Iñárritu's uh, life, you know, that like that he he lost a son and that's where that comes from. Like he actually, one of his sons passed away and that's where this whole element comes from, you know. the Sort of the things that they talk about um, in the show when he's invited to this like talk show, the things that, that the, the former friend is sort of like yelling at him, a lot of those things are factual things from, you know, his life that are known to the Mexican sort of viewership or whatnot, or people that have engaged with him. He used to be a radio host in Mexico before becoming director. And I think, and, you know, the nicknames that he had and the, and the, the soccer team that he goes for. And so like, I'm not saying that this, not knowing this will hinder your ability to understand the film, but I do feel like it makes, it makes much more sense when you, when you realize that the strangeness or madness comes from reality, you know, like all dreams are sort of like, you know, uh, a jumble sort of like rearrangement of your ideas and memories and feelings and experiences. And I think that once you sort of stop wanting it to be and conform to a very pattern you then you might, you know, at least engage with the craft and the sort of like massive sort of, um, yeah, the set pieces that are in the film, like, you know, the dance sequence that is you know, an incredible piece of cinema just on its own. The fact that, you know, the early scene when he meets sort of like an American diplomat, it's shot in like the Castillo de Chapultepec in Mexico City, which is a castle that's actually like a historical site. It is the actual castle where the Mexican-American war took place and he's shooting there and he's the first, the first movie ever to be allowed to shoot in that castle, you know? And so there's a lot of those things that to me are just, you know, just incredible sort of accomplishments for the movie, uh, in terms of how it depicts, you know, uh, Mexican the the house in the desert was a physical house that they drove 3000 miles from Mexico City to the desert to shoot it physically in an actual desert you know um and you know there's also the I love the idea that he engages with immigration and the notion of like being part of two countries and you know having sort of like you know not being fully part of either of them and that you know he's he calls himself a first class immigrant and sort of acknowledging that he's not the same as other immigrants who come from Mexico and other places who have to cross the desert or who are undocumented. Uh, you know, there's so much to unspool in this movie that when people reduce it to an exercise in excess or in, in ego, of course there's ego. You know, every filmmaker has ego. Every, the, the notion of making a movie about your own life is the most sort of like, you know, self-centered thing you can make, whether you're Spielberg or, or Iñárritu or whoever just, who is in the better graces of the general population or who's more famous than we are allowed to accept those movies. Darius Kanji shot this movie and I think pretty brilliantly, but also Inyaritu shot, uh, is his own editor on this. And I want to know in a film where visual language is so important, when did that take you out, if any, or were you completely entranced from like the first few minutes? It was completely entranced from the first few minutes. Um, and you know, if I'm being, if I'm being honest, I also don't feel like the movie is that complicated or unique in what it's trying to do in the sense that it is just a man who is about to die looking back at his life. That is what this movie is about, you know, and whether that life is, you know, a, a memory of 
being in a pool with his daughter or a memory or the the image that he thought would be when he received an award or, you know, hugging his father or getting to talk to his father, you know, that's really all this movie is, you know, and, you know, kind of like embedded into that is the national identity and sort of like, how does that relate to, how do, how does that define you as a person, the place where you're from and the stories about the place where you're, where you're from, how these things sort of like, you know, shape who you are and how you behave and who do you become when you leave these places and you adopt sort of another culture, you know, who do you become when you're no longer there? And so to me, the editing, of course, you know, people could say it could be shorter, it could cut this, cut that. But I recently went to, there was like an exhibit for some of the sets here in LA of Bardo, like some of the costumes and the sets uh, that they did last weekend. And on the screens where they were playing scenes that were shot that are not either in the original cut or the other cut. So there was clearly even more material that didn't even make it, you know. And I was like, oh, I wish that was in the movie because, you know, I feel like, you know, that would expand on this idea. But at the same time, I know that the running time and, you know, the studios or the companies want certain things and, you know, maybe he didn't feel it was essential. But to me, there's like so much that it was fascinating, you know, to know that there were either entire scenes that didn't even make it to either cut, you know, even as long as an excessive as it is. Um, and so I don't know if it's any ever advisable for filmmakers to be their own editors. I feel like maybe some distance can help with that. Uh, but then again, so many of them do it. You know, it's, it's also not an uncommon thing for people to edit their own movies. So I do feel like maybe some distance might, might help. I like knowing that detail of him being the director and editor for this film because uh, one name in particular that always strikes my memory when I think about some like a director who just always hands on is I don't know how much tour you watch, Carlos, but I'm thinking of Mike Flanagan mm-hmm. and how he often takes on the role of being both um, or being, you know, the, the trifecta of I'm going to direct this, I'm going to write it and I'm going to edit it because he wants it to match it one particular style. Um, the Haunting of Hill House on Netflix. Oh my gosh, I'm going to throw flowers at that till I die. But here in Bardo, um, I think like you from the beginning, I, I was just strapped in and I was ready for a ride. I think that uh, moments in particular did kind of engage me a little more, at least for our characters, but otherwise there's so much there's so much look at here specifically when you're walking with the character, when you're turning corners, when you're entering doorways, you can only expect for like the world to only expand, whether it's the sets, whether it's the costuming. Um, but there are times where it actually like minimizes that it gripped me, you know, his discussion with his father in the bathroom at the party, I was going through your review and how you speak on the fact that they could easily, you know, do the trick of having a conversation between a boy and his father and this is a grown and his father and um, shift it so that we're just looking now at the old man and his boy, but they don't do that. They hilariously, you know, just shrink his body, but keep his head the same size so that Silvetio is still talking from like his current mindset from his current state of being, but receiving his father, like how you would as a child Um, it's his moments with his dad. And then, uh, I liked his his conversations between him and his son about how like being brought up in America, but retaining your Mexican identity ha- is something that looks very different for Silverio's son versus his own connection with it. The whole conversation with the son and how that, you know, deals with identity and, you know, who who we are, you know, when we migrate, who do we become? And, you know, also the the, the very real kind of questioning of, you made a movie about these migrants in the desert 
even though you are also immigrant, the stories, the realities are very different. There is a level of exploitation or of using them, even if your intention is not that, because, you know, you are coming in from a different perspective. So to me, that's where I found the movie very honest and sort of like, you know, uh, you know, as sort of like him, you know, who is so privileged and, you know, and has awards and is a, you know, acclaimed filmmaker and whatnot to acknowledge sort of like the the limitations of one's empathy. You know, you can feel empathy for someone, but you'll never understand exactly what it's like, you know? And so I think those, those moments to me are interesting or the moment with the, the wife tells him that, you know, when you are here in the U S you defend Mexico against anyone's land there. You know, if anyone says something about your country, you become the most patriotic. But once you go back and visit, you're the first one to criticize it. And so that duality of like feeling that you could say whatever you want about your country and be negative about it. But when someone, a foreigner, you know, uh, kind of, you know, bad mouths, uh, your homeland, you become the most patriotic and how you become even more patriotic when you leave your country, when you sort of have that distance, because, you know, the fondness of this idea of what you remember it to be, you know, makes you sort of like even more proud of being from there. And so I think all those things are, you know, speak to me as someone that grew up in Mexico City and moved to the U.S. when I was, you know, a teenager. And and so now I, I wonder where I'm really from. You know, am I from here? Or will I ever be fully from here? Am I still, you know, just Mexican from Mexico? If I go back, will I, you know, be the same? And clearly when he goes back and, you know, the journalists ask him, you know, like, oh, what do you think about your country? And he's like, I, I could never understand my country. The only thing I can do is love it. And there's the TSA scene that kind of exasperates that as well. The idea that like his entire family joins on being like, you know, we are citizens of where we think we belong. Like, who are you to tell us otherwise? Right, right. I mean, and I interviewed Iñárritu about this immigration themes. And, you know, he talked about how, you know, that scene was inspired by, you know, things that had happened to him and his family, you know, while re-entering the U.S. And this notion of like, this is my home, but at the same time, I'm not ready to sort of like give up even if symbolically you know the place where i really am from and so yeah i think that was a very interesting scene you know um that uh that he so badly wants you know this american homeland security agent to you know to tell him oh yeah this is your home and at the same time he still wants to be as mexican as he always was i want to quickly bring up because i've been thinking about this the entire time that i was watching it the axolotl because I have a theory as to why that's so prevalent in the movie, because as I found out, axolotls are one of the few amphibians that you can't put them on land for a long time. Like, they're amphibian, but they can't really straddle the two worlds. And I'm wondering if that's a bit of a metaphor for Inyarutu himself, or for um, for Saverio in this case, because he is so finally trying to stride the line between, you know, what he thinks is objective truth, but also his art and his craft. And I'm wondering if he has the idea of, like, is he trying to say that he leans more, or that he can't lean towards both? Again, in this interview that I just did with him, he mentions uh, axolotl. First of all, it's a species that only exists in Mexico City, so that's right. already sort of the thing. It only it only lives in Mexico City. The meaning of the word bardo is like a limbo, like an in between spaces. That's what bardo means, you know. Um, it's in the the space between life and death, like a purgatory limbo. So that's what a bardo means. And this creature lives in between land and sea. You know, it's a creature that transforms and if you chop off a leg it regrows his, his, his limbs you know and to him according to what he told me for this interview is that that's what he thinks of, of Mexicans that that's what we are you know we don't want to call ourselves Spanish 
but there's also a lot of racism against indigenous people in Mexico. Some people don't want to be associated with Spain, but also don't, you know, because of, you know, colonization have lost understanding of where their indigenous roots are. And so we are people that are like in between two states, you know. That again goes back to being in between two countries. And so I feel like it is a perfect creature to represent that sort of like interstitial state of like not being fully part of anything, you know? Let's hop in the ratings. Uh, for me, I will start. For Bardo, I came into this thinking, I like this and I appreciate it a lot. And I'm really glad that we had Carlos on the show because I think to me, it clarifies, I think, some of the connectivity to it. Like, you can only make so much connectivity to a movie like this. It's very much a movie that I think you either get on its wavelength or you don't. And for better or worse, I think just some people haven't. For me, I really wound up engaging with a fair amount of it, especially in the second half once I really got in tune with it. And there are some really breathtaking images to this. Like, we're going to talk about Avatar later on the show, but these are both movies that really have expansive, you know, settings behind them, extensive stakes behind them. I think this one has a lot more interesting things to say. It might be one of the most purely interesting movies that I've seen this year. I don't think it'll appeal to everyone, much less, you know, newcomers to Indianology's work. Like, I didn't mention it, but I've, you know, I've basically seen Birdman and Revenants. Like, you know, like you said, Carlos, like, I'm the one who's seen, you know, the North Americanized versions of, you know, Indianology's work. And I love Birdman and I like Revenant for what it is, but, you know, I'm not, I've never been the most enthralled with his work. So for me, this was really interesting seeing just what he can do with Netflix budget, take what he can do with it and run with it. I'm going to say eight and a half. I really appreciated a lot of this. I want to revisit it at some point in the future because I do think there's a lot of symbolism and narrative nuances just being lost on me. But purely from a visual, you know, filmmaking perspective, there's a lot to really appreciate about it, to really like and connect with it. And I think if you are a fan of Inyarazu's work, it really shows you what the guy can do when he goes big, bold, and just, you know, doesn't really have any restraints behind him. Again, it's not a movie that I recommend for everyone, but like Avatar, I'd say it's worth your shot. This is such a feat of a film for anyone, either a, a commoner to Inaratu's work or, or if you're a newcomer like me. Um, this film said you watch it, you strap in and you go. Um, if you ask questions, they, they're probably not going to get answered because of the state of this film. It was a good time watching it. I want to go as high as you, Brandon, with eight and a half, that this discussion should, should itself to a higher rating. Uh, while I absolutely recommend it, I think this one sits more comfortably like at an eight for me. Um, I will return this with some of my friends who are able to sit and like take this film for what it is, uh, but not for those who are going to be expecting something, I don't know, something more handed to them in terms of storytelling. I think I'm all 10 for 10 on this one. I'm a big fan. I've been one of his biggest defenders uh, since the beginning, which made me feel crazy out of Venice. I think now some people have come around, <laughs> uh, but out of Venice, I feel like I was like the only one that really liked this one. Um, yeah, I mean, I would just recommend people to seek out perhaps Amores Perros, his first movie. I, I mean, I very much like Babel too, which is, I think, his third movie, 21 Grams. Some people don't like him or his work. Um, but, you know, I, I happen to be a big fan of, of him and his, his work. And again, Bardo is streaming on Netflix right now, if any of you are interested. But right now, we're going to hop into The Big Daddy, the biggest thing of all, the biggest, biggest thing, because uh, there's just too much to talk about, even with all of our discussion on Bardo. Avatar, The Way of Water, is here after 13 years of development. Uh, James Cameron and company, Sam Worthington, Zoe Saldana, they're all back. Along with some other people who we may or may not spoil, I don't know. Uh, Noah, there's so much to talk about this, but can you somehow condense what the way of water is and you know see what we're back into with Pandora? Absolutely, Brandon. Avatar. It's a film you saw as a young child 
cradled by your pets in the movie theater. Then you ate and you had a child and you told them of legend, the myth of the spectacle of James Cameron's avatar that at least you'd think in 1940. And then your child grew and they had a child of their own and told them <laughs> of, the, of the great wonder of Pandora. Well, finally, Gar, at the sequel, it has been lifetimes from its original film and now but i can, i'm going to provide to you the details of which i can remember um off the top of my head we are going to discuss what lies on the surface before we get underneath the sea a la the little mermaid okay avatar the way of water what's going on in this film with its hour and 12 minute runs we are in full swing of a new generation of life for the navi for the invaders on pandora we follow the sully family who i'm naming as jake sully and atiri have had children they have two sons and their names uh, escape me now, but we'll get into the details of sp specifics because, boy, are there so many names and specifics to know from this world. Um, but they have two sons, and they have a young daughter. They have sort of an adopted daughter, uh, those three being their biological children. They also have a, I would say, an adopted daughter. The child born from Grace, the lead um, biologist in the first Avatar movie, her Avatar body when when mended with Awa produced this child, you know, it's, it's a bit of an Anakin loosely, Skywalker situation. Bit of an Anakin Skywalker. And so now we have her and she is also part of the Sully family. There is, there's a mention of the aftermath of the first war in Pandora, the first avatar human war in Pandora leading the off planet well, when it comes to the sergeant, you know, we all remember him as uh, Quaritch. He had offspring, too. He had babies, too, on the planet. That's just what happened. And so now that the young boy whose name is Spider, his name I easily remember, but he is a human boy living amongst the Navi people, knowing their ways, pretty much being brought up to be a member of the Navi culture. Uh, but it's clear he is not one of them. He's obviously a human. They are 10 feet tall and three foot, four foot long arrows. He is four feet tall. <laughs> like the, he doesn't have the tail that can connect to Awa or their animals, but he is in full swing, lives the life as you would expect from a, a Navi from the forest. So the Sullys, it is called the way of the water because at threat of being hunted, uh, we know of course that Jake Sully is the head war chief of the, of his clan. And so they, it, it is his call because their family is being hunted to, instead of fighting and, you know, matching that resistance, he thinks the best option for his people and for his families to go on the run. So he does, he takes his family and they all travel to a water village. Uh, water people and uh, they met with opposition they are met with um, concern over their just this disruption that would cause to their way of life and we have previously only understood pandora from the eyes of the forest you know with awa as our like spiritual leader and with all of these familiar characters guiding us before now 
it is like a a new layer of Pandora is being peeled open for us because once the Southern Village, there is just so much life to be explored and so much um, community that has already been created. Now the Sullys have to throw themselves into. So I'm going to leave it at that for now. Uh, the villain of this movie is colonialism tenfold. They have new uh, names. Do they have new faces? Of course they have new names. But do they have new faces is the question. All right. Um, without getting too far into it, Brandon, I hope that that guy, I hope that that guided you, if not full of our listeners on sort of a journey for what this film packs into its large runtime. But where do we start with James Cameron's to call it a long way to equal would be like mercy. So no. What do you think about this resurrect resurrection, um, attention, exhilaration that it surrounds Avatar. Interesting choice of words, Resurrection. Um, we should quickly mention, uh, you were talking about the kids. Uh, the only one who is familiar with me is Britton Dalton as uh, Loak, who, if any of you are familiar with Uncharted, he plays the younger Nathan Drake in that game, so there's a connection there. Um, also, as part of the kids, uh, we have Jamie Flatters as Nathayam, who is the older son of the two, kind of the prodigious golden child. You mentioned Sigourney Weaver already, and then Jack Champion, who plays uh, Spider. Um, oh, as well as um, Trinity Jolie Bliss, who plays the youngest uh, Took. Um, so that's the kids of uh, Jake and Nick Fury. As far as getting into Avatar, we talked about uh, the first one about two shows ago, three shows ago. It's hard to keep track now. It's exciting revisiting it because, you know, knowing what Avatar was over a decade later kind of puts it into context for what it is. I don't mean to use this comparison because I think I don't necessarily agree with him nearly as much as I used to, but Chris Stuckman actually kind of hit the nail on the head when talking about so that James Cameron films, but especially the Avatar movies, where they are big, bold concepts that if you reduce them down to a thread, it's basically one thread, which is, you know, in this case, capitalism bad, environmentalism good. And you know what? There's something to be said about that. Like, we praised the first Avatar for what it was among its many flaws, but for being, you know, visually stunning and inventive and, you know, really boiling down the elemental core to what it needs to do. And I was curious to see what they do for this, because again, from the trailers, it wasn't giving that much of a story. We were going to be exploring the uh, water people, um, quit, forgive me, I'm forgetting their actual tribal term. But in this case, I really wound up liking a lot of it and liking it and appreciating it more than the first movie, actually. And again, recency bias is a fickle thing. I understand what I'm going for. The story itself is a bit more rounded. You know, there's a bit more connectivity to it. There's a bit more spiritualism to it. There's the idea of we're following Jake and Atiri and specifically their kids, which is probably the most surprising thing about the movie is that the movie is really based a lot around their kids. If you were expecting to see the next chapter of Jake and Atiri, it's like, you get that. But it's really framed around the kids coming of age and exploring this new society and, you know, doing the things that young kids will do sometimes in good and bad ways. And I like Loak. I like Natam. I like all these new kid characters more than I thought I would. And I was surprised just how much I connected on that level, just seeing them grow in this new world. Purely on that level, I think it works. The original, you spend all of that time with Jake and Natiri, with Jake's new walk into this Navi way of life, with Natiri as his, as his guidance, as his love. And that is a story that we have enjoyed, that we have uh, applied for years now, lifetimes. And so to arrive here at the Way of Water and to place focus instead on the children, on the next generation of who will be brought up on Pandora, 
it's uh, it's a point of interest because their two eldest sons are grown are growing in ways to understand like the hunt to understand um their relationship to their world uh to to nature that surrounds them uh maybe even spiritual but we don't get really heavy spiritual swings from the older brothers uh we do get the swings from her name is kitty so her as her character is grace you know this is the daughter who i mentioned came from her and is now the Sully family. Her attunement to the spiritual side of Pandora is unlike what we've seen before. And so when the focus is placed on her, I like that that's like her, her distinction. Um, they do have a younger daughter as well, who I think is there to be cute and to like, you know, provide us some of hearted, like, this is what growing up as a young member of the Navi would, this is what it would, this is what it's like. This is what it's like to have older siblings. And this is your dynamic with them when you have influences from, uh, from an, from a native of the planet, as well as your influence is from a man from the stars, an earth born man. And what his uh, personality would like how his personality and how his parenting style would shape you as this young now bicultural kind of being uh maybe that's a point to explore throughout the film uh the types of like lines that are drawn between upbringing and background but uh just on the discussion about the children i found that yes visuals brandon mouth I mean, let's game. talk about it like <laughs> let's talk about how there are whales in this film i'm going to call them whales but they're called tukuns they are so much more uh it, i'm going to say they are so much more connected to the world they are beings who have been here for like millennia it would seem based off the movie and how they they are depicted so smart that they have they have the brain connectivity uh neurons that are you know, a hundred times smarter than man. They understand complex thinking, mathematics, reasoning, relationships. And this is a species that we don't hear a word from. We only get to like understand them based off of the Navi counterparts for them, at least for us, you know, being the, being the viewers. But I found them to be just the, the highlights for this film, if not the highlight of the film, because I love that, this next wave of exploring Pandora, we are now connected to one of its oldest or, or wisest creatures on the planet. And they do that well. I think they do a service to their world by bringing in this next layer of storytelling. Because there is that thing in the first Avatar of like most of the non-Navi creatures that aren't them and like the weird puffball things, most of them are out to kill you. And they kind of establish that early on of like everything in the forest wants to kill you. So it's kind of refreshing to see, you know, a part of Pandora that is really so gentle and is far more advanced than any of the cult of any of the Navi subcultures. I will of course take this time to mention where this story's like the chapters of this story. It is a long, yeah, you probably could slice it up. Really the first part of this film is realizing that threat, you know, taking the time to provide exposition to what the lay of the land is at this generation for Sully and his family. A big portion of the middle of the film can can damn near be it can drag and you can place it alongside the original and say is james cameron telling us the same story with different you know with different markers different characters because when we have two characters one of which is human being involved with the militants and then the other is 
a Navi who is learning a new way of life from a, you know, romantic interest and them to have a budding romance going along. That reminds me of Jake and Natiri when they first met and how she was able to hold his hand, walk him through how to feel comfortable in this new world. And, and we follow the human character and how he is at this point, he's kind of forcibly being told to share details of the, of his family and their way of life. And, uh, Details that then can be, you know, used against the Navi people. And what did Jake do in the first film? When he was in his human state, he was a soldier. He was a proud boy. So he had to share details he didn't want to. But because he was asked of it, that was his job. Uh, that's what he had to do. So I, I saw, like, clear similarities between this one and the first film. Uh, did I love seeing that? Maybe not. But, you know, it is, it is something to note. There's still plenty of new to look at to the point where I was like, okay, but it's not, it doesn't feel recycled, but the direction that the story is going. um, It's so clear also that this is a number two. And when I say number two, I'm sorry. (laughs) It is so clear that this is the beginning of a new kind of just wave that is to come from storytelling on Pandora. Hey, what can I say? Uh, The first film, could exist by itself it has like everybody kind of just accepted that that was what we got from pandora here there's plenty of rabbits to chase plenty of holes to dive into i'm pretty sure there's going to be youtube floods of videos on the channels just saying you know what can pandora explore what does this mean for the next like five freaking movies we already know james cameron has six like slated to come i believe what three was done shooting but four is still being written they shot three in tandem and they shot part of four because there was apparently a time jump in the fourth one. Holy hell. But Brandon, you, yeah. get the same, uh, you get the same feel that this is so clearly a movie that wants to snowball with its storytelling into what's to come. Like it wants to be the sequel that people beg for more from. And I hope that it delivers on that because there's, like I said, plenty to chase here. I like that term. One, I just like the term. But two, I like it for this movie because yeah, one of my issues really with the movie is... Yeah, the script overall. But I think what you said beyond the idea of like the first, no spoilers, but the first 20 minutes is basically like going back to Pandora, reestablishing what's been done. Then you have most of the movie really delivering on what the promise of it is. The new water world, the new learning of the skills, the new stakes that are involved. And then the last hour that if you're online at all, every other critic has been praising to high heaven. In fact. I like that term snowball because it kind of lends a bit more just a bit more uh, suspension of disbelief for that because a lot of that middle of the movie is just basically hopping around between subplots. Like we get a little bit with, you know, some of the villain storyline here and there, but it's mostly just jumping between like, you know, what does Kiri do? Oh no, she gets in trouble. What do the boys do? Oh no, they get in trouble. And it kind of bounces in between like them learning skills. And it, it very much feels like an episodic thing up until the last hour where all of the different points come together. And I'll simply say, it's incredibly satisfying. Like the last 45 minutes to an hour of this movie is just nonstop, big, bold, bombastic action from James Cameron and company with, you know, giant set pieces and destruction and character fighting abilities that just really had me on the edge of my seat the entire time. So as much as I'm willing to criticize the middle for doing what it's doing, I'm also willing to give it a little bit of a pass just because of how much I was fun, how much fun I was having towards the end of the movie. 
So we have two new faces joining the uh, Avatar cast, and they are the leaders, the um, the mates that lead the Water Village, and that is Kate Winslet. She comes in and she plays Ronald. A Ooh, I don't know about you, I didn't recognize. No, I did not. I had to remind myself that this is Winslet you know, on this character, um, but she is she's pregnant. She is um, it. it you would expect this to be like a matriarchal community, but it's not. But that being said, she still holds such great influence and power over her people. Um, she's a character of her own. I like the, I liked was able to provide in terms of how this community of people, their relationships to more than just each other, to the uh, the species in the waters and how they treat them just as brothers and sisters was amazing for me. You know, putting myself in their shoes, I, I was really thankful for her character for drawing those lines and, and connecting me to their world. Cliff Curtis plays Tonawari, who is the chief of the water village or water clan. And he also was just unrecognizable. I did find myself asking, you know, is this actor? Because he has that familiarity where you you know it's someone great, but I just could not place him. Uh, I want to commend Cameron and just obviously the immense team behind this world because when the forest Navi, and I'm saying Navi, that is the species of people on Pandora, yes? Yeah, I'm pretty sure yeah. they're all encompassing Navi. They're just different. They're uh, all subcom- Navi. So when we talk about Navi, um, what we have known is the Navi of the forest. They have tiger-like stripes along them. Their tails are like nimble and but long, helping them balance. Um, they're fast. They are a hunting people. We get to the water, and they have, you know, not exactly, <laughs> they don't have like a dorsal on their back, but their tail is flattened in a, as a, I would assume like a process of evolution, allowing them to swim in water more fluidly, um, more seamlessly. And they have these webbed, like these webbed linings on their appendages that you just look at and you go, even their physicality, like the way that their bodies fill in different ways, you can understand that so much thought went into how can we create this world and make that distinction between you are forest people, you are coming to this new um, environment and new place where you have to hold your own. Your bodies are going to face limitations because this is what, this is what we have excelled at because we've done it for so long. Our bodies are literally shaped to our lifestyle. I commend them for that. I loved just focusing in on what made the Navis different here. And that's a good transition. I don't want to like overpraise the movie because I do think there are some problems with it, but it's a good transition to the motion capture. Um, we talked about how the Navi look in the first movie and they look great. Even the, you know, the remastered IMAX that I got to go see, like the touch-ups all look great. You're right. The, the very distinctive look of the forest Navi is fantastic. I think I'm ready to say the motion capture here is perfect. Like some, I didn't, I found one, one shot in the final battle where, um, oh, who is it? where I think it's Loak, who's the youngest son, he's, like, telling his dad not to do something, and it looks a little emotionless. That's the one time that I saw anything wrong with the motion capture. You cannot dis- you can't tell any Navi is any different from any human, any creature, anything else. It- the movements are perfect. It's incredibly emotional. The stuff on Kiri is... Fun- There's one scene, and I won't spoil the context, but, like, it- I think you know what I'm talking about. It's her, after, like, a big training montage, she's kind of, like, sitting in, like, this lagoon, and it pans to, like, 
her in this very shallow water, the sand's there, and then it pans to just her face as the water's like shuffling behind it. And no one's talking about it. I think it's one of the most visually inspiring shots I've seen in years. Like, it's just so perfect. Not everything visuals is perfect. We'll talk about the frame rate, I'm sure, because it's jarring. But the actual motion capture, I have nothing but positive things to say. Okay, the mocap. Amazing. I had to mention yeah. the fact, you know what Zoe Zaldana can do? Oh, yeah. Just in- incredibly. She can cry. <laughs> I We've gotten now a, a teary-eyed, you know, state of woe from Saldana Colombiana in Infinity War. And in here, again, she is giving you these emotional, like, just wrenching um, moments where I like, I want... I want more for Natiri, but I've, I, I have to like be patient with what's going on here. Um, that is, that is a slight negative thing. Just... Like, we, we get a lot of moments between Sully and the kids. We don't get a lot of moments between Natiri and the kids. I would agree. And they want you to feel for her as a mother because of what, where the story takes you. You can only expect more for like what the crumbs they give us are. Okay. Um, I'm bordering on spoilers. Okay. Something else to mention. Brandon, I saw this movie Thursday night and I went to IMAX 3D and I was like totally prepared. I said it's three hours long. I started my day at 6 a.m. and I'm ready for this 11.15 showtime. Now, mind you, it was AMC. So I I made the mistake of showing up, believing that the film was going to start at 11.20. It started maybe 11.45, 11.50. Oh my gosh, please. I know trailers are amazing, but oh my gosh. All I care about is seeing Nicole Kidman saying, we come to theaters. Okay. But dude, I was welcomed into Pandora, a, a short 20 minutes of a ride of adventure. I started falling asleep. I started falling asleep. <laughs> it was so late. I was, it was 3D. I was in such a state of like, like I'm saying, ah, like jaw dropping mouth agape moments where I was like, this movie is so much to look at and it's 3D and it's loud and it's moving so fast. I, I'm losing myself in it. Like, I can't focus the hell is going on. So um, that Thursday night viewing felt like a fever dream. Like, I had pieces that I remembered, but the ultimate, like, full experience beginning to end, I did not have. So I returned Friday because I said, I want to give an authentic review of this. That's I have nice. to make sure that I can speak on it. I wanted to make sure I could speak on it from a place of like, yeah, I totally understand it. Not, yeah, I watched it 50% and I'm going to give you a full review. Uh, no. So I, I went to the theaters again yesterday and I watched it not in 3D, thankfully. Um, it's my own personal take. You know, I wanted to take this in, like I said, as a story beginning to end. But if you had 3D option, this is a world to live in for those three hours. You are, you're there with them. And I, I find that incredible. Um, but for, for what the movie had to do, I had, had to sit back and just, you know, take it in beginning to end, not lose myself in all of the details. First of all, you're a real one for sitting through this twice. Like, that's incredible. Um, second of all, it, it does seem to win, again, like my biggest movie, which is the woulda, shoulda, coulda aspect of it. It feels like for a movie at this length, with this much stuff to go over, it feels, and with a structure like this, where it seems like for at least... At least 60% of the movie, if not like 70, you know, 70 or 80% of the movie, a lot of it is just little bits, little moments, little, you know, buildups to the setup. And I feel like we could have gotten more from that, specifically from Spider's journey. I felt like he was the most underdeveloped character in the movie who was supposed to have this really poignant arc, you know, with some of the human side of it. You're, you're right, the kind of connectivity between the Navi. And he really doesn't. 
Like there's a whole thing in the ending where he has to make a choice and it doesn't feel earned. And that's not a blame on Jack Champion. I know he's doing his best and I applaud him for what he's doing, but I think the writing doesn't really give him the effort there. Um, you know, Sigourney Weaver is doing a great job as Kiri, but like, again, she's like a six-year-old woman playing a 15-year-old and it gets a bit jarring after a while. But, you know, th there are things like that where I just kept paying attention to like for every two cool things I was looking at or for every one thing I was like, oh, that's kind of neat. There was another like one and a half or two things where I was like, why aren't we exploring this more? Like, why are we just going back to, you know, exploration is grand, the environment is great. And I think that's amazing. I think there's going to be a lot of people who watch this who are going to be young kids or maybe young teens who watch this and get inspired to pursue environmentalism and all the power to them. That's all James Cameron really wants to do with his life at this point, and I applaud him for it. But from a purely movie structural perspective, the movie has holes in it, and I'm not going to act like it doesn't. My gripes about the script are how it definitely feels like it, like it's not like it wasn't timely, I guess. Like maybe the script was something that was done so early on and now it's being, you know, applied to this, uh, you know, being brought to us now. I just found myself kind of rolling my eyes at certain things like the male, the male chiefs, uh, pardoning their, you know, excuse the bee, excuse my mate because she's like outspoken or something like that. Or I was kind of just like, dude, dude, kind of cringe. Um, another one was like, we have Jake's kids use the word perv. And I don't know why a child growing up on the Island of Pandora would use the word perv because you, I have to assume the ones that speak or they're one of the select few Navi people that speak English. So you know, it's amazing to me how hard this film or this writing wanted you to believe that, that the, the children in the Sully household are like half Navi, half like earthborn modern teens because they're not. And I don't like that they felt that way. As, even when we come to characters like Kitty, Kitty is yes, a child of grace. Sure. She could have some of her quirks, but she was raised by the Sully family around the Navi people. So why is she, film wants you, her to be like this angst teen so bad. And I don't want, I, I, I thought she worked powerfully when she was with herself or with one of her parents, defining her really spiritual, you know, weave that exists on Pandora. You know, we called her Awa in the first film. I'm not sure what they called her in the second film. I, it slips my memory, but that's where I found, uh, reasons to, uh, invest in her character. Beyond that, I, I couldn't get beyond, you know, this, she's just, she's just angst and cheered up. Like, this isn't earth though. Like that, they shouldn't, <laughs> is what I'm saying making sense, Brandon? How do you feel about that? Well, I remember in our first Avatar review, we talked about the idea of like, okay, so humans come to Pandora, right? And they construct these bodies. And what's the first contact like? Like, hi, I'm a human, but I look and act exactly like you in a body that I created without your permission. Uh, what the hell? Like, and that's never explored in the first movie, and it really isn't explored here as well. But you nail the, the, you hit the nail on the head with the kids because they try to explain away why they know so much more English than they do Navi, but so do the sea people. And so it becomes a thing of just kind of like, not lazy writing, but a bit of like structural nonchalance where it becomes like, we're just going to have everyone speak the same language and make it sound like English. Like maybe they are speaking Navi or we never know. And it, the Navi is a beautiful language. Like in the first movie, it's one of the more interesting aspects of where that culture is coming from. And we just don't really get that in this. And it leads to like a domino effect of things that could have been explored, but the filmmakers just don't really want to do that. And it, it's a little infuriating, I'll be honest.
even speaking on the threat, we have now, uh, again, ten, uh, increased maximized colonialism coming to the planet of Pandora with the reveal. I mean, sure, maybe it's a reveal, but we don't spend long on this note at all, that Earth is dying and we need to make a new home for the people of Earth. And that is, we are going to pacify the natives that live on Pandora so that we can come and make this the new home for humanity. I was like, that's the big, that's the big, that's the big bad. I mean, I'll take it, sure. But it gives me nothing more than what, you know, what we got from the first film. And again, they are extracting this rare, like, material, this rare um, Let's natural just say resource. Because I don't want to say where it's from. Yeah, so that, so that they can do this thing for humanity. But uh, I just I have problems with, you know, the way that they presented that to us. I'll kick off my rating. I will go ahead and give Avatar The Way of Water an 8 out of 10. I think that we've... I got to stop mentioning the point about us waiting because it has been just hilarious at this point. Uh, But when we return to Pandora, we return not to a familiar side of... And I think that that's really what's going to impress the newcomers. It's going to make them go watch the original. Uh, I doubt there's any newcomers. I'm pretty sure everyone has filmed with anticipation to... uh, re-experience what life is like for the Navi people. And now they can be introduced to this new way of life that happens beneath the surface. We have uh, exciting new uh, situations for our characters to be to be involved with when it comes to protecting their family. Probably the best parts of this film are going to be when we submerge ourselves and we start to understand what these new creatures are and what their ties to uh, this planet are because it, it just makes it all the more special and it's not familiar. It is a whole new world, as some would say. And my favorite character by far is those Tukuns. They are the what I'm calling like the whales of this planet. And they're amazing to look at, amazing to try and understand. I can only hope that they're a uh, character that we return to for the future of this franchise. But a strong eight for its incredible visual visualization and just delivering on the promise the next Avatar film was going to be jaw-dropping. That's the thing, is that I'm not just reviewing Avatar Way of Water. I'm reviewing what the prospects are for Avatar 3 and possibly 4 and 5, which is a little more... It's a weird precedent to set, because like even when we review you know, Marvel and DC and Star Wars movies, there's not so much on its back weighing on it. And yet, this is also James Cameron we're talking about, who is able to carry you know tons and tons of stakes and pressure and technical aspect behind him, and I think, for the most part, carry it off. It does struggle from a lot of the same things the first one does. The story is, if not thin, underdeveloped, and I think there's a lot of nuance that could be really explored that Cameron and his co-writers, uh, Rick Jaffin and Amanda Silver, who I really like, and I'm surprised that they weren't able to imbue that into the script. Um, but again, the new characters are really fun. I want to see these kids grow and evolve in in different ways, but also slightly similar ways to their parents. I want to see them go through big trials, but also big, you know, heartwarming success and, you know... Again, they're good characters, and I want to see them move forward with this. And again, Cameron has developed this world, for better or worse, that is really expansive, really interesting, and offers a lot to it. Like, I, if you had asked me, you know, a year or two, hell, even 10 years ago, I don't know if I would have predicted this for the next Avatar movie, but I'm glad this is the approach that we went with. It's still big. It's still bold. I can't stress enough the visuals are why you see this movie. Like, we both saw it in IMAX, and please go see it in the best theater you can. Like, I do genuinely... I don't say it much, but like this is a genuine theater experience. I I highly encourage you to see it at least once. You know, does it have its flaws? Yes. If you hated the first Avatar, will you love this? I don't know, but I think it's worth a chance. I think it's worth the chance on the big swings that it does try to take. 
And that'll do it for episode 41 of Plot Devices. Thank you all so much for tuning in and giving us a listen. If you want to follow us further, uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, RSS feed, at Plot Devices. That's, you know, Plot Devices, two words. Twitter, Instagram, uh, at Plot Devices Pod. That's Twitter and Instagram, at Plot Devices Pod. And our TikTok page, at Plot Devices Podcast, which we are slowly but surely uploading things to as we speak. I want to thank uh, our guest commentator for today, Carlos Aguilar. Carlos, thank you so much for, you know, answering my spontaneous message to you and, you know, coming in like 24, 36 hours in the show. Uh, I hope to have you back. <laughs> Where can the people find you online? Uh, do you have any work you want to plug? And uh, if there's anything you've been watching or reading that the people should not know about? Just because of this episode, I mean, I mean, I just published an interview with Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu for the LA Times, and I also did a piece on the actor of that Jimenez Cacho, who's one of the most, you know, recognized Mexican actors, and so he has worked with Alfonso Coron, with Guillermo del Toro, and with Alejandro, and so I interview all three of them. I interview Coron and Guillermo and Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu about their work. So yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Carlos underscore film, and yeah, that's where I share all my pieces and random thoughts about movies have you watched Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio do you have plans to watch it yeah I love that I I adored it I that's actually my favorite movie of the year oh my gosh yeah, oh my goodness. It. We have yet to talk about it, but it's it's for sure something that we're considering because I just previewed it last night. I just watched a couple of like maybe half of it and it was it just blew me away. Like it, it's it's so tastefully done in his way that I think it's gonna be one of those that knocks out some others when it comes to his work and what lies at mm-hmm. the top. It's really great, yeah. I genuinely cannot wait to watch Pinocchio, uh, especially after Zemeckis' whatever he did. Uh, Noah, my name is co-host, as always. Noah, uh, thank you again so much for being here. Where can people find you online, your work, and uh, if there's anything you're watching, reading, playing, enjoying? Always on Twitter at Noah's Plotting. Um, I am still working through that to, that grieving playthrough of God of War Ragnarok, but one day I will get it done. Uh, <laughs> 30-minute sessions only help a like 40-hour campaign so much, so we'll get there slowly but surely. Um, beyond that, I am watching Wednesday. I'm wrapping up Andor, uh, but we'll mention that soon on the pod, so that's all I got to plug foreshadowing uh you guys can follow me on twitter and instagram at the movie king 45 that's twitter and instagram at the movie king 45 follow my band at Cablebox music at, uh, that's at Cablebox underscore music on twitter and instagram our debut single wish is out on all audio platforms as we speak more music is coming very soon and more gigs as well so just follow those accounts for more and stay tuned uh coming up later because spoiler this is our last episode of the year we're you know we're jamming back with this uh we will be back in at least three weeks if not four we have a couple of, again, mini-sones planned. We have our most anticipated of 2023 coming and our best films of 2022 coming along once again. So those will come along at uh, some point early to mid-January. So just stay tuned for that. So for myself, from Carlos Aguilar, from Noah Guzman, this has been Block Devices. I'll catch you guys next time. Bye.